Oh, amen. All right, well, welcome. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you come to be with us uh, as we start a new series called Does Jesus Work? As all of our stuff we do at Hope, from the sermons to the songs to everything, we're pulling all of this from Scripture. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way with us to Matthew chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, don't panic. We'll have that on the screen, and we'd love to gift you um, a Bible. Let me ask you this question, though. As we start thinking about this topic of whether or not Christianity, whether or not Jesus really works... Have you ever met a martyr? Of course, you're going to say, no, they're dead. Yeah, I get that. Martyrs die. That's how they become martyrs. Otherwise, you just met somebody who may or may not become one. But I'm saying, have you ever met somebody, whether it's actually meeting them or through biography, through reading, through engaging with their prayers or their journals, feel like you've gotten to know somebody who is so convinced of the truth about Jesus that they sealed their testimony with their blood. Historic fact that Christianity was built on the testimony of many who then later were killed for their faith. Many of the men who wrote the New Testament were later killed for that faith. I think when you read something like the story or the biography or the testimony of somebody who then was martyred, we're confronted with something that's totally alien to our culture. It's difficult for us. If you grew up in a very sheltered world where you were presented one worldview, then you may have gotten old enough to remember the first time you met somebody who believed something totally different. That very first time you met somebody who was articulate and intelligent and convinced of something, the exact opposite of what every parent and teacher and person on Sunday morning told you was true. But for many of us, we weren't like uh, old enough to remember the first time we met somebody that was different. We just always grown up with a lot of different perspectives. If you've grown up in America, you've always grown up with culture, tastemakers, our leaders who believe things that are really different from historic Christianity. That's what you grew up with. Maybe you grew up with something totally different. And today you're encountering a different perspective as you hear a little bit more about early biblical Christianity. We've always had a plural, a plurality, a a set of different options. And so for us, it's a little bit more difficult to get into the mindset of somebody who is so sure that Jesus was who he said he was, that they died for it. In our culture, we tend, because there is so many different options, we tend to imagine that the answers to the biggest questions are not true-false type questions. They're really more like walking into Baskin-Robbins. You ever walk into Baskin-Robbins and get that smell of the waffle cones? 
and see the bored employees having to give lots and lots of samples to children who finally figured out that they can't say no. They just have to keep giving you samples. And you walk in, there's 31 flavors. The cases are filled with all these different colors and all these different combinations of sugar and corn syrup and nuts and all kinds of stuff. And we kind of think that the answers to the biggest questions are like when you walk into that ice cream shop and you just get to choose. And you can choose whatever you want. And whatever you choose is right. It's what you wanted, and I'm so glad you got it. I hope you get to enjoy that ice cream. But nobody can tell you that you're wrong for choosing the ice cream you chose. If you go with me, I will get that chocolate ice cream that has the big ribbon of peanut butter through it. Oh, man. It's rich. You can't eat much of it, but it is delicious. And it goes all the way back. I have nostalgia. It goes all the way back to going with my grandfather to the little Baskin Robbins that was part of a gas station. And we would dip out. He would get the like really, really rich chocolate and I would get the rich chocolate with peanut butter. And that's what I'm going to get. It's going to be great. And you're going to get something different. You may even get something that I'm opposed to. Like they've now got a uh, green tea ice cream at Baskin Robbins. That's a, ter- that's a bad decision. <laughs> I drank green tea for a little while when I was trying to like do other things than coffee and see if there's other things to drink or whatever. It's just grass. It's not anything other than grass. And yet, if we go together and get ice cream and you get green tea ice cream and I sit down with my delicious chocolate peeler ice cream, I don't have an argument to tell you that you're wrong. If that's what you like, then that's exactly what you should get. It's ice cream. And no matter how passionately I tell you to try my ice cream, and you're going to enjoy my ice cream, you just try my ice cream. If you get green tea ice cream and I get chocolate peanut butter, the result is going to be that we sit down at a table together and we both enjoy our ice cream. We both have a wonderful day. Because at the end of the day, whatever you choose with ice cream is fine. And in our world today, we've taken, weirdly... The, the most complicated, the most deep-seated, the most important and gigantic metaphysical questions about whether God exists or not, who we are, where we're going, what we're meaning, ethics, beauty. And because there's so many different options and because you really respect and love the people that believe different than you, we kind of take all of those big questions and we reduce them to ice cream and we say, you do what's best for you, what works for you for now. Maybe if it doesn't work so well, you can try something different or mix and match. What came from maybe just a desire to make society work has ended up with a difficulty for our brains as we encounter what the Bible says about the deep things. Because they saw it different than we see it. They came from a pluralistic society like we are, and yet they saw Jesus' teaching as either true or false for everyone. And so when we ask the question, does Jesus work? And we think about how Jesus might work or might not work for things like your identity. 
Who am I? Does Jesus get to answer that question? If he answers that question, is it a good answer? Does it work? We'll talk about that next week. Then, does Jesus work when it comes to my temptation? Does Jesus have the ability to help me overcome destructive patterns in my life that I've done and I keep doing and I don't want to do, but I really want to do and I know that I need to stop? Does Jesus help with with that kind of temptation? Can he tempt me away from temptation? We'll talk about that in two weeks. And then finally, does Christianity, does Jesus, Jesus' teaching, does it work to ignite a people that go out and actually work to accomplish what Jesus had as his mission? The love of God and the love of man. Does Jesus work for making a people that multiply the amount of love in the world? Well, if we're going to get any of those answers, we have to ask the question the way Jesus would have asked the question. By really saying true or false. Not individual, not relative, but true or false. Most of us today would say, when we think about the big things, that the answer that we have is maybe true, maybe not, but works for me for now. What I want to hopefully help you see is if that is your understanding of the big questions, then your answer is going to be unstable. And while it might be fulfilling for a moment, that's not what Jesus has on offer. I want to ask you to, with me, at least entertain the way that Jesus would have asked these questions. So we can decide whether or not his answers have any merit. Matthew chapter 7, the end of that section, was called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a very famous putting together of Jesus' teaching early in his ministry. Matthew 5 through 7 is that, that section, that sermon. And Matthew 7, verse 24, is the end of this sermon that Jesus preaches. And it says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Wow. First thing I want us to understand from this passage is the beginning and the end, the way that Jesus is teaching. It says at the end that the crowds were astonished by his preaching because he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes were the people who could write And there were the people who, within that community, studied and learned the the law. The old, we call it the Old Testament. At the time, it was just the Testament. It was just the Bible at the time. But the Old Testament, law. They understood it. They knew it inside and out. And they knew the teaching that had sprung up around that law, the traditional teaching that the rabbis did. And so you would go to the, the scribe and you'd say, here I have this issue. I have this thought. I have this question. I need to know. 
What does God say? And the scribe would try to think and look back on what he knew about the law of God and the traditional teaching. And he would tell you what those people said. He was just a messenger. He wasn't the originator. He's just telephone. He's just taking what was and he's helping you understand it. We at Hope Church only exist in that function. You will never hear me say anything original. And that's not just out of lack of intelligence. It's mostly, we'll say mostly, it's mostly out of conviction that I don't have anything to bring to you from me. I just stand on the authority of God's word and I try and hand out God's word. So even if it did come up with something, it wouldn't be better than, it wouldn't be more helpful than, it wouldn't be more true than God's word. That's what the scribes did. And yet when Jesus speaks, he doesn't just speak on the authority of the word. He actually grounds his teaching on his own authority. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That's bold. (laughs) And yet... That's what Jesus did. And what did Jesus claim as his authority? Why did he have the moxie to talk like that? Well, because he claimed to be God. It says in in different parts of the Gospels, all kinds of different ways that Jesus claimed to be God. But here's one of them that's just wild. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus is describing, he's talking, he's welcoming back his uh, disciples. He had sent them all out to go and talk about who he was and to come back. And as they're coming back, he's going to talk to them about some cool stuff. And as he's beginning that conversation, he starts with this sort of throwaway sentence. It's useful. It's in the Bible. It's there for a purpose. But it's not what he then continues to talk about. He just says it and then moves on. But it's crazy. He says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he just keeps talking about other stuff. Imagine if you and I were talking just about our week. And I was like, yeah, I was was driving past 7-Eleven. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And then my kid's school called. And I was like, I don't even know. Like if I just threw that in, it was just a byline in the middle of the conversation. Because for me, that was just a normal thing. What? Jesus is claiming something. He's claiming more than the average builder in Jerusalem in the whatever around his time period would have claimed. It says in John chapter 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Jesus is talking, again, don't talk about bold. He's talking to the leaders of the time who would have seen Abraham as their originator. These people are all ethnically Jewish, and so they would look to Abraham as their great, 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 blah, 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 granddad. He's the one. And Jesus is saying, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. That's bold. Abraham had hoped for one who would be a son who would take the punishment that those that were God's people deserved. A sacrifice. If you read about the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham understood through faith that something was coming. Abraham saw that something big was coming and rejoiced. Jesus is claiming to be the thing over which Abraham rejoiced. And then he goes further. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50. You say you've seen Abraham? Great point. Listen, whippersnapper. You are not old enough to have seen Abraham thousands of years ago. Clearly. 
And Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, again, he doesn't quote anybody, he quotes himself, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? The tenses there are a little bit weird. He's saying Abraham was, and before Abraham was, okay, I can get there. I am? I existed? That's maybe one thing he's saying there. But that's not all that he's saying, because he says, I am. And if you learn much about the Bible, there's a point early on when Moses goes, and he's got to go and tell the people of Israel who are slaves in Egypt, thousands of years before the time of Christ, And he's got to go and he's got to bring them out of Egypt. And this is the ten plagues and Charlton Heston, if you've ever seen it. Just trying to catch you up. So there's a point where he says to God, I've been a shepherd in Midian uh, with the people of Midian for 40 years. I'm just going to go into Egypt and tell them to let the Israelites go. And then the Israelites are going to follow me. Who, Who should I say has sent me? And God responds, I am. I am. He gave his name as Yahweh, Hebrew for I am. Jesus is claiming here to be Yahweh. And the Jews responded as Jews would when somebody claimed to be God. They just start trying to kill him. They pick up stones right then and there. It's not because he made fun of them. Not because he had the gall to argue with them. It's because he blasphemed unless he didn't. He claimed to be God. And then he established those claims on his own work and his own life. It says in Matthew, then there's a moment where the, the same kind of bad guys in the story, the Pharisees are coming up to him and they're, they're asking him all kinds of different questions. They're trying to trap him. They want him to show them a sign. All right, you're claim to be God. You've got to prove that claim. And Jesus responds, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah in the Old Testament was a prophet who disobeyed God. He went the wrong way. And because he was trying to run away from God, God sent a storm. The sailors on the boat throw Jonah out of the boat. And then a whale comes and swallows him up for three days and three nights. He's in the whale, repents as one would, and then gets vomited on the road that he should have been walking the whole time. No sign except the sign of Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Heart of the earth. What's he talking about? Mark 8, if you look at another place in Jesus' ministry, there's a part where he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. There's times where Jesus' teaching is covered in these, uh, these stories and these illustrations and these parables. And they're confusing. But apparently there's a time when Jesus was teaching about himself and what would happen to him where he just said it plainly. I'm going to be arrested, rejected, killed, and then I'm going to come back from the killed. I'm not going to be dead anymore. I'm going to just wake up and walk out of the tomb. Get it? 
get it? And his disciples were like, got it. And then, yeah, when Jesus went to die, they had no concept that this was going to happen. Jesus hung what he said on his actions, whether or not he would come back from the grave. And that either happened or it didn't. The boldness of the early Christians was founded on their trust that it actually happened. But it either actually happened or it actually didn't. When we go to ask the question about whether or not Jesus is true, he's saying to us that he is either truly true or absolutely not true. That he's either exactly who he said he was or he is somebody not to be regarded. When we ask if Jesus works or not, we have to go even further because Jesus is clear that his teaching is alone. His teaching is exclusive. When he says what he says about himself, he says, I'm God or I'm not. And if I'm God, you build your house on my words, or you build your house on something else. But if you build your house on something else, when the storm comes, your house will fall. What does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about a couple of different things when he says the storms. I think we all can understand to some degree what he means. I think probably he means in a capital sense, the storm that's coming, meaning your death. Certainly the storm he came to address with his life, death, and then resurrection. Jesus' prime enemy was the idea that death is somehow natural. I think as humans, we understand in our hearts that death is not natural, but unnatural. The idea that love ends is not a natural understanding of love, but an unnatural one. When Jesus came and preached his message, he was not saying that it's okay to just pass away and let the world continue without you. No, death is unnatural. And what he came to address was exactly that, that his words could be a foundation that would pass you through even And yet also, he's describing the storms, plural, that we endure on a daily basis. That the words of Jesus would be a foundation upon which you would have the ability to weather the storms that are coming your way through your life. Now, will we believe him? The idea that we're going to have faith in what he said or not comes down to our understanding of faith. And if we don't understand the the, is he true or not question, we probably don't understand what we mean by faith either. But a great definition is provided by a guy named Francis Schaeffer, a Christian intellectual from the previous century. He says, faith is the empty hand. It's the instrument by which we accept God's free gift. Faith is simply believing God. Not a leap in the dark. It's not, it's not a leap in the dark. If you have to justify why you like ice cream, you just say, I like it. Many people do the same with their faith. Do you have reasons for why you believe what you believe? Well, it works for me for now. Just like it. 
No, no, no. It's not a leap in the dark. It's studying, it's thinking about, it's experiencing and learning about all these different things that you can understand and experience. And then seeing those things together, making an informed decision that it's true or that it is not true. Not a leap in the dark, making a decision and then ceasing to call God a liar and believing him. How, how would you actually go about making that decision? Well, there's a million ways. Uh, in Luke, he, he puts the whole of his gospel around this idea. It says in the beginning of the, the gospel of Luke, inasmuch as we have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke, physician, historian, has undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, deli- uh, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's possible for you to understand whether or not Christianity is a thing to be believed by studying, turning your brain not off but on, studying the historical reality of Christianity. Studying the question of how a guy from the middle of nowhere with no important parents, in fact, maybe a lot of shade cast on his parents and their possible morality or immorality. Hello? I don't know that most people believed Mary when she said, God did it. Think about it. He's a builder in the middle of nowhere, and yet, with a public ministry of a mere three years, sets in motion a a movement that you are participating in today, willingly or unwillingly. Whether you meant to be here today or not, you are currently participating in that same ministry. Something happened. What? Well, roll up your sleeves and look. I've got nothing to be scared of. Uncover. You can think critically. You can also just experience him. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is Good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some of the ways Jesus works. I described it. We're going to talk about how he can help us build our identity, how he wars against our temptations, and how he ignites us to go out and change the world. You don't have to be a full believer to come and study that stuff and see whether or not it would actually happen. And if it were true, would it be a good thing? To just, just taste. Come back. Just taste. We're only going to do this for four weeks. And of course you can test out his community. We're starting these community groups and it puts a lot of pressure on me to think this. But biblically Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Great. Makes sense. Kind of thing that I teach my kids. Much less God teaching us. Okay, yeah. Love one another. Sure. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Whoa! That's saying that people can evaluate the truth or falseness of Christianity on our ability to love one another. Ha! How are we doing with that? Right? It's really bad unless we understand what the gospel says about Christians. Gospel does not say that we are good people. 
or even that we're nice people. People that are in this room and have been here for a long time and consider themselves to be Christians are not people that you necessarily are going to look to and say, wow. To become a Christian is not to say I'm better than the rest of the world. To become a Christian is to admit that Jesus was right about you. And what did Jesus say about you? He said that your sin before him was so blatant, so drastic, so offensive to the holiness of God that the only cure was the blood of his own own son, the blood of God himself. What did you do? What does that say about you? That insists on a humility. My only way of salvation was by God dying for me? I must have really screwed up. I'm not going to be able to walk into the room proud. I'm going to have to walk in humble. And yet, (laughs) the gospel says about me, that though I sinned enough that, that that was my only solution, I am loved enough that God pursued that solution for me. In Christianity, we can love one another with a humble confidence if we'll just apply the gospel. This is his healing. It's what he does now as a foretaste of eventually, one day, when we go through the big storm, being his forever. Now, this morning, my prayer is that you will receive that. You'll be like these people that we baptized this morning. You'll see these testimony videos. That you will say, yes. But I don't want you to say it because of a persuasive moment. I don't want you to say it because of a social pressure. I want you to say it because it is truly true. And for it to be that, you're going to have to take the steps that it takes to have an informed decision about whether or not Jesus was really who he said he was. Our hope is that we can take some amount of time to help you in that that process. That's why you belong before you believe. It's a long process. Hang out. Be part of our community while you take the skeptical steps that you have to take to make that decision. And again, if you are somebody who is in this house of faith already, you've already said, that's me. My prayer is that you would help yourself pull apart some of the social influence, some of the cultural influence that has made you say your belief in God is in some way negotiable. That you can edit what God has said when it comes to what the culture values or what you value. That in a time of temptation, you just decide to do it your way. That in a time of calling to go and to do big, great, wonderful things in the world, you would instead say, nah, I think I'll just hold back. If Jesus is who he said he was, and it's truly, truly true, what could he not command of you? Let's let's think about it really hard. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please, this morning, would you fill us with your spirit? Fill this this place with your presence? So that, Father, we can understand that much more who you are and what you've said about yourself. I pray that we would really come to a point where we make the decision 
that you either are who you said you are or you're not. And if you are, that we would take all of the steps necessitated by having a new Lord. A Lord who loves us to the skies, but a new Lord nonetheless. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.